Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Fifty years ago today, police in Washington, D.C. arrested five men for breaking into the offices of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate building. What did the president know and when did he know it? The men were soon linked to President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign. And what followed was the steady revelation of a web of interconnected scandals that ultimately ended Nixon's presidency. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Watergate became shorthand for America's biggest presidential scandal, and the suffix gate entered the global lexicon. Did you talk about party gate and cabinet? But with strange timing, Americans are marking the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in with a new round of televised public hearings into a different president, accused once again of undermining a democratic election. The political landscape has vastly changed between then and now. Had Watergate happened in today's political climate, would it have played out the way it did? Would it even be remembered? And what lessons can the ongoing January the 6th hearings learn from the Watergate hearings that captivated America half a century ago? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. June 17th, 1972 was the day that, for most of America, the Watergate scandal began. Garrett Graff is a journalist, historian and author of the new book, Watergate, A New History. When you had the five burglars tied to Richard Nixon's campaign caught in the act of burglarizing the offices of the Democratic Party at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C., That kicked off a series of investigations by the media, by the FBI, by the uh, eventually Congress that led to the unraveling about two years and two months later of Richard Nixon's presidency and his resignation. That's the story that we sort of think that we know. It's one that has been, you know, heralded and celebrated in books like All the President's Men by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein and the movie 
about them starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. We're about to accuse Haldeman, who only happens to be the second most important man in this country, of conducting a criminal conspiracy from inside the White House. It would be nice if we were right. You double-checked your sources. Yes, right. Bernstein, are you sure on this story? Absolutely. Woodward? I'm sure. And my goal in this book was to try to tell America that we misunderstand Watergate. And that, in fact, that burglary was really like walking into the second or third act of a play with no understanding that that play had already been underway for some period of time. And and that, in fact, what that Watergate burglary sort of kicked off was the public's recognition of what we now understand was about a dozen distinct but interrelated scandals, schemes, and conspiracies that had been emanating from Nixon's White House since the very beginning of his presidency. And I want to get into those, and we should, but before we do that, you've called your book Watergate a new history. Beyond shedding light on those events that were known at the time but may have been forgotten over the 50 years, as it were the first and second acts of the play that people have forgotten because they walked in at the third act, have you managed to find genuinely new elements to this scandal, or surely, 50 years on, everything that could possibly be known about Watergate has been known, but has just simply slipped out of the public memory. Yes and no. The context of a lot of the events wasn't understood at the time. And subsequent revelations and historical discoveries have made us think about Watergate differently. There are two sort of big ones that really stand out that have only come out in the last few years that really change our understanding of what took place during Watergate. The first is the identity of that famous anonymous source, Deep Throat, who was famously played in All the President's Men movie by Hal Holbrook, this shadowy figure in the parking garage talking to the reporter Bob Woodward and telling him, Just follow the money. We have long imagined that Mark Felt was a democracy defender, that this was someone who was a Nixon insider, disgusted at the corruption that he saw within the White House. It turns out that only in the last 15 years, we have come to understand who Deep Throat actually was, and that it was this FBI deputy director named Mark Felt. He is a bitter bureaucrat who was passed over by Nixon for the job of FBI director and ends up basically making it his personal mission to sink the man that he thinks stole his job as FBI director. So reimagining the Watergate story, recontextualizing it, changes our understanding in a big way of what the politics were inside the Nixon administration at that moment. So important because for people who, and I'm not naming any names about myself at all, who spent their adolescence obsessively re-watching all the president's men, uh, the moral thrust of the story is centred in a way on Deep Throat. And our belief as viewers of the movie and as consumers of the news story at the time, I presume, that there was this sort of moral drive. And you're telling us actually it was classic Washington of somebody being slighted and passed over for a job. Exactly. And in many ways, Mark Felt doesn't care about Richard Nixon at all. Um, Richard Nixon ends up almost collateral damage 
to Mark Felt's personal vendetta inside the FBI. And there are some fascinating moments that, again, we now can understand with hindsight and, and clarity that where Mark Felt knows damaging information about Richard Nixon that he never bothers to tell anyone because Richard Nixon isn't his target. So that's the first of these big new contextualizing, new illumination of the Watergate story that your book is engaged in. You said there were two. What's the other big one? The second is in a series of events known as the Chenault Affair, which literally we now only understand within the last decade, thanks to some newly declassified documents. And actually, the Chenault Affair, as we now understand it, is where Watergate begins. And it begins before Richard Nixon ever makes it to the White House. In the fall of 1968, Richard Nixon is running for president. He's the former vice president running against the current vice president, Hubert Humphrey. And Lyndon Johnson is desperately trying to bring the Vietnam War to a close and, and is convening in the fall of 1968 the so-called Paris Peace Talks. And what we now understand is that Richard Nixon and his campaign director, John Mitchell, worked with a Washington doyen named Anna Chenault to encourage the South Vietnamese government to stall those peace talks. Um, to, to be very clear about this, Richard Nixon, as a private citizen in the fall of 1968, kept the Vietnam War going for his own personal political benefit in order to deny his opponent the prize of having made peace. Exactly. And that these are some of the sort of most credible allegations approaching outright treason that we have against any American political figure in history. And what we now understand is that Nixon and his treachery were discovered by Lyndon Johnson in the final hours of the 1968 campaign. Johnson confronts Nixon... Nixon denies the whole thing, and the clock runs out, and Nixon wins the election. Johnson then decides that he can't harm the country by exposing Richard Nixon's treachery, and he classifies and buries the whole event. Amazing, because he fears that the American public would lose faith in their new president. So as a, as a patriot, he thinks it's better that they don't know that their new president was ready to commit and did commit this act of treason. Exactly. Extraordinary. But Richard Nixon knows that Johnson knows. And so Edgar Allan Poe, telltale heart style, this uh, treachery sort of eats away at the inside of Richard Nixon's presidency because it becomes this secret that he must keep buried. And so it drives his wild overreaction in 1971 to the publication of the Pentagon Papers, those leaks from Daniel Ellsberg about the misdeeds and lies of the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration in Vietnam. Because even though the Pentagon Papers have nothing to do with Richard Nixon, he is afraid that the details of the Chenault affair will come out as part of the leaks. And so he creates this internal plumbers unit that sort of infamously becomes the dirty tricks operatives who later 
yeah, burglarize the Watergate. And these are the guys who are literally in the, as I understand it, in the basement, in the bowels of the White House, who do the political, as you say, dirty tricks on behalf of the boss. It, exactly. And it leads Richard Nixon to come up with this fantastical plan to burglarize not the Watergate, but the Brookings Institution, a think tank in Washington, because he believes that Brookings has a copy of the papers related to the Chenault affair. And he repeatedly, actually on tape, orders the burglary of the Brookings Institution. I want it implemented on a debris basis. Scott Bannon, get in and get those files. And all this goes to the point you were starting us off with, which is this isn't just about the Watergate break-in that happened on June the 17th, but rather this pattern of a whole series of interconnected scandals, a pattern of corruption, fraud and abuse of official power to quote the final senate report that investigate or of the committee that investigated watergate but it was a kind of systematic effort to undermine the integrity of an election and the reason why i frame it that way is obviously here we are 50 years on with once again a congressional committee looking into a president who is accused of contaminating, seeking to thwart the democratic process without, because there's so many moving parts to this, but just give a flavour of the kinds of wider abuses beyond uh, the break-in that all went under that umbrella heading of Watergate. What you do see is Nixon engaging and, you know, he brings this dark criminal paranoid conspiratorial mindset to the presidency that then permeates the top ranks of his administration and leads to all manner of illegalities and abuses of power and abuses of American civil liberties. You know, the burglars break into the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg, uh, the Pentagon Papers leaker. They wiretap reporters. They wiretap uh, their own White House aides. And in fact, the Watergate burglary is not even the first Watergate burglary. It's actually the second burglary of the Watergate because that same set of burglars had been in a couple of weeks earlier to try a first attempt at installing wiretapping and bugging devices. And those devices didn't work correctly. So they came back on the night of June 17th and had they not been caught that night, they actually had plans to go on and burglarize the Democratic presidential nominee's office later that weekend as part of what they had as a whole summer of dirty tricks aimed at the Democrats. So given all that, the sheer scope and breadth of the larger Watergate, as it should be properly defined, a campaign of that would involve extorting corporate executives for cash, using laundered money, falsifying federal records, perverting the powers of government agencies, hiring saboteurs to spread libelous information, and then perjury and buying silence, bags of cash, the abuse of the presidential pardon, all of that under this capacious umbrella of Watergate. Do you think that there is a legitimate comparison 
given that there are hearings now in the summer of 2022 and they were and, and the story broke in the summer of 1972 is it wrong to compare the charge sheet that is being read out in effect against Donald Trump we'll tell the story of how Donald Trump lost an election and knew he lost an election and as a result of his loss decided to wage an attack on our democracy accusing him of inciting an insurrection to overthrow the American government and the charge sheet that in its sprawling form was laid out against Richard Nixon. I actually think that the comparison is inescapable because I think what we see with both Donald Trump and and Richard Nixon is exactly that shared, dark, criminal, paranoid, conspiratorial mindset that they bring to their presidency and that then permeates the upper ranks of their administration. I think one of the things that is becoming more clear the further we get from the Trump administration is that it was in many ways that same umbrella of related but distinct scandals that we saw in Watergate. And that the Trump story is in some ways all the same story. And that there is a clear line that you can draw from the Russian attack on the 2016 election to the Mueller investigation, Trump's obstruction of justice there, his first impeachment with that so-called perfect telephone call with Ukraine, then leading into his big lie around the election of 2020 results, and ultimately the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, and the second impeachment, that in many ways, the best way to understand the Trump story is to understand it in the same way that we understand Watergate as one continuous umbrella of scandal, misdeed, and conspiracy that unfolds from the campaign right through the final day of his presidency. So let's just talk about the differences between then and now, because one point made that is very striking when you look back from this distance at the way that the whole Watergate story played out was the crucial role Republicans played in holding a president of their own party to account. And fast forwarding to the you know final act of the drama, it is Republicans in the Senate who go and see Richard Nixon in the White House and tell him, look, the game is up. You've lost support even among us on your own side. We will vote to remove you from office. And that forces his resignation famously in the August of 1974. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. That resignation happened because Republicans turned on him. You look at today's political climate where, yes, there's Liz Cheney, a Republican who is acting as vice chair of this House Select Committee looking into the events of January 6th, but she's out on her own. There's just a couple of them who were ready to stand up to Donald Trump. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone but your dishonour will remain. It means that those who are trying to hold 
the Republican president who left office in 2021 to account have a much tougher job than the Republicans who were trying to hold Richard Nixon to account just under 50 years ago. This is the difference between then and now. One of the things that is so striking going back and looking at the Watergate story is, yes, it's the story of a criminal and corrupt president, but it's also the story of the system working, where every institution in Washington all have a distinct and important role to play in bringing Richard Nixon to justice. Because what you saw in Watergate was the Republicans participate as good faith members of the legislative branch. They acted throughout Watergate first as members of Congress and only second as partisan Republicans. And that, to me, the biggest difference is that when we look at Republicans over the last five years, and particularly in the first impeachment or the second impeachment, the list of people who were willing to put their legislative prerogatives first is incredibly small. It makes American democracy much more fragile. And putting those two points together, were Richard Nixon president in the partisan polarized climate of 2022? Would he have been held to account? Would he have been driven from office by members of his own party? I think that there is no doubt that in today's political environment, Richard Nixon survives because of the the change in political polarization in the United States, because of the rise of the right-wing media ecosystem led by Fox News and sort of all that it entails and poisons in the American discourse. But I think the clearest way to know that Richard Nixon would have survived today is that Donald Trump survived. Um, you know, Donald Trump's actions over the last five years, I think, are much more dangerous to our country and much more destabilizing to our democracy than Richard Nixon's ever were. And yet we saw, you know, Donald Trump only be forced from office by a loss at the ballot box and not by the political system writ large. So that's a huge difference between then and now, the change, the shift in the partisanship of the Republican Party. The other big change is partly in it about the media. You have a partisan media now, and so you you know, you know, have Fox who will say that Trump did nothing wrong. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. You know, it tells you a lot about the priorities of our ruling class that the rest of us are getting yet another lecture about January 6th tonight from our moral inferiors, no less. And you have the other networks saying, yes, he did. Whereas back then you had two or three broadcast networks that more or less settled on what they considered to be the facts and weren't allowed to editorialise. But the other media difference that I was going to wonder about was the fragmentation that's happened in the media since. Televised hearings, your account I know and others that have been written of Watergate make great play of how the country in that hot summer watching those Watergate hearings were hooked watching day after day, almost like a TV soap opera, different characters chairing the committee, witnesses developed almost cult followings. There are televised hearings going on right now in Washington. They started uh, at the end of last week. Do you think televised hearings have the power to grip the nation and the nation's imagination now in the way they did back then in the 1970s? Uh, certainly not. Um, the average American household that summer watched about 30 hours of hearings. You know, that's almost a full works week's worth of hearings over the course of that summer. 
which is an almost unimaginable level of civic engagement and involvement today. I worry that the January 6th committee has bitten off more than it can chew with just limiting itself to six to eight hearings. You know, so far, those hearings have been compelling and, and fascinating and shocking to watch. But I do worry that it's not going to be enough to break through and capture and tell the full story for the American people over the course of the next couple of weeks. Garrett, we always ask our guests a what else question on the podcast, something else. Uh, This is going to be related because it's something that came out of the January the 6th uh, hearings. And that is this story about Rudolph Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, and the role he played on election night back in November 2020. The story is that Rudy Giuliani, former mayor of New York, close advisor to Donald Trump, seemed drunk. And it was he who told the president that he should go out there and say we won the election and that, quotes they're stealing it from us. What do you make of that? The reporting about Rudy Giuliani's role that night confirms a lot of journalistic reporting that we have seen about how that evening played out and the president's desire very early on to attempt to steal the election by basically declaring victory prematurely a possibility that was in many ways taken from him by the decision by Fox News to call the state of Arizona for Joe Biden early that evening. Um, And and that was, to me, some of the most compelling part of the, the January 6th committee hearings was watching the head of the Fox election desk declare how they had made that decision and choice and how proud they were. Well, it was really controversial to our competitors who we beat so badly by making the correct call first. Uh, Our decision desk uh, was the best in the business, and I was very proud to be a part of it. Even though they realized that it meant that Donald Trump had effectively zero chance of winning the presidency thereafter. I think what we see in, in, in Rudy Giuliani's behavior that night is the harbinger of all that would unfold between then and January 6th, which was the president increasingly fell to a group of, you know, sort of non-credible grifters, hangers-on, and wild conspiracy theorists to try to further his attempt to remain in office. And that basically there was no one credible who saw a path to Donald Trump remaining in office or or declaring victory. And yet he was convinced and colluded with people like Rudy to destabilize the American system of government over the weeks ahead. Garrett Graff, thanks so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America. My pleasure, this was great. And that is all from us for this week. Garrett's book, Watergate, A New History, is published by Simon & Schuster, and it's out now. Finally, we'd like to say how deeply saddened all of us here at The Guardian are by the news that police have now found two bodies in their search for the journalist, uh, our colleague, Dom Phillips, and the Indigenous expert, Bruno Pereira. Our thoughts are with Dom and Bruno's family and friends. 
Today in Focus covered this heartbreaking story on Thursday. For now, it's goodbye. This episode was produced by Yolene Goffat. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.